All right, good morning. This is Bakes, Kevin Baker, Bakes Takes. Welcome to the podcast. It's uh, Tuesday, 9-21, and uh, uh, this is a special edition and audition with an E and an A. Uh, uh, Tim Rotolo, the CEO of North Shore Indices, is my guest. Uh, they run the Uranium Trust that I talk about ad infinitum, URNM. And Tim, uh, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Glad we could... Uh finally connect and good timing with everything that's happening in the sector. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, a, a heck of a couple of weeks. Uh, I know some of this, not all of this, but for our audience, please tell me, us, about your path, how you found URNM or, or how it found you maybe. Yeah, that's probably a better way of thinking about it. Um, so I, I spent uh, a couple of year, years at Merrill Lynch uh, on the private banking side. So we were basically global, global asset allocators. Started doing some uh, fund investing there. We had a, you know, kind of like an endowment style portfolio model and got really interested in what hedge funds were doing and you know, found that they were looking at these really interesting either niche or distressed things and uh, wanted to get closer to capital allocation. And so I uh, in 2009, great timing, joined a, a credit and distressed hedge fund uh, <laughs> and got a lot of exposure to some of the best investors in the world, guys like Paul Singer at Elliott and David Tepper at Appaloosa, Dan Loeb. Um, and this idea of kind of event, you know, really fundamental value investing with uh, an event overlay became kind of my preferred style of investing. Um, and I, you know, I think increasingly I was realizing that broad markets are pretty efficient, but there's, there are these pockets of inefficiency and they tend to be in these smaller markets where, you know, really bigger players can't participate. And I spent, uh, spent some of my time gravitating towards those types of opportunities at that firm. And in 2015 decided that I actually wanted to, to spin out on my own and try and find those types of ideas myself and deploy capital directly to them, either through a manager um, or, or ultimately, you know, making the investments myself. And, uh, and then, so I did a few things uh, along those lines, looked at some things in the cannabis space, launched a small company called Architis Ventures with a couple of guys out of LA. We launched a, uh, a equipment financing business um, that ultimately went public. It's called Extraction, or now it's called XF Financial, uh, trades up in Canada. Really cool little sector, um, you know, back in, so when we looked at in cannabis in 2017, it was pretty inefficient. There was not a lot of capital. They were, they were just starting to have companies go public. Um, and I think it got a little bit ahead of, ahead of itself. And, you know, you're still seeing kind of reverberations of a lot of capital being allocated to this sector, probably inappropriately. Um, but now there's starting to be some emergence of opportunities. And so, um, fast forward to 27, late 2017, uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter of all places. And then, so just, I'll take one step back. Um, at one point in my prior role at, at uh, Sandalwood Securities, we had been asked by a guy up in Boston to create a Boston only, Boston only hedge fund manager fund of funds. And right. one of the managers that we went to meet with was, uh, Jeff Finnick. And, and Jeff was in the process of hiring a guy called David Ivan. And David was gonna run a deep value part of his portfolio. And then Jeff's existing team was gonna run a Garby style and they were gonna kind of combine forces. And it just so happened that was in 2012 and David Ivan's favorite idea at that point was uranium. Uh, so he had a big position in Cameco, a uh, big position in Denison and Fission. And so I started to look at it back then and you know, fast forward to 2017, I look at David Ivan's portfolio and he still owns those stocks. But so I'm on Twitter at one point and I see this guy, um, I think his his handle was, you know, deep value stocks or something like that. Okay. And he's talking about uranium. I'm like, oh, wow, is, is David Ivan on on Twitter? And, you know, I he happened to have his DMs open. So I sent him a DM and he said, no, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Mike Alkin. And uh, I just wrote this white paper and I said, oh, that's, that's so interesting, send it to me. And so I read it and it just so happened that Mike lives just a couple towns over from me. 
and we had a, a mutual acquaintance. And so we all got together for lunch and talked uranium and, you know, ended up launching a fund, um, which is uh, Station Cove Partners, which is the, the, the firm that Mike is CIO of, and I help run the business there. And we got really deep into uranium and it just was such a fascinating sector. And really it was at the intersection of all of these things that I thought made you know, a very attractive investment opportunity. Highly capital constrained because all the money had gone away uh, post Fukushima. It was incredibly inefficient because you had no sell side and too small of a market cap to be able to attract generalist hedge fund investors to make it more inefficient. There was no sell side. Um, you know, there, there, there's, there's just a myriad of things that, that on its face, without even kind of understanding the depth of the fundamentals that Mike did at that point, I, I was immediately attracted. And, and so, um, you know, we ended up launching Station Cove and, and then as we kind of got further into this, the sector uh, in, in 2018, we saw this news about URA changing their mandate. And I just looked at it and said, oh man, well, first of all, this is what a fascinating bottom signal this is. You know, you have kind of <laughs> the only player out there going about as far as they can without shutting down their fund, you know, which, which is a, a, a phenomenal contrarian signal. You look at uh, Van Eck shutting down KOL last year and look at what Cole's done this year, you know, on absolute fire. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, so I loved, I loved just that contrarian signal of these guys changing their mandate when the fundamentals of the sector were arguably, you know, the most attractive they've been. And so they created this, you know, further negative feedback loop within the sector and really pushed the prices of the equities down. And I looked at it, you know, I've always been very entrepreneurial and, um, you know, curious. And, and so I said to myself, if, if we're right about this thesis, which I had absolute conviction, I mean, I had the majority of my, my net worth invested in the stocks um, and, and very much aligned with our investors in the hedge fund. And I said, if there's, if we're right about this sector to the magnitude that I think we are, there's going to be a space for an ETF. And I looked at things like lit and, you know, some of the other, kind of niche commodity ETFs where the commodity story wasn't even that attractive. And these ETFs had hundreds of millions of dollars. And so at that point, I think URA had something like three or 400 million. And, you know, at, at the peak, the market cap of the uranium sector was about 150 billion. Um, I felt like if we could capture a half a percent or geez, 1%, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty great product. Um, and I actually had to fight the board um, when, when I ultimately went to launch the ETF about the idea that there's sufficient liquidity and market cap. And I said, you can't look at what the market is today. You need to look at where it's going and that liquidity will come back. Market cap will come back. New names will be added to the sector. And, you know, thankfully that that's actually worked out. Um, and, and we've In had space. a lot of them come back. And so it, you know, um, it, it took us some time to figure out the the back end mechanics of how you actually launch an ETF, which is you know topic for another day. But um, you know, fascinating path there of you know, so building the index, trying to build an index that was sufficiently different from what existed, and taking a lot of the things that I had learned at the fund of funds about portfolio construction, and really trying to apply those so that we would get, you know. Kind of maximum asymmetry um and and so that that's kind of how we came up with this idea of having about 80 percent in the miners and 20 percent in the physical i felt like the physical provided a really nice ballast it's going to give you that one-to-one -one correlation but it's going to also act as a downside buffer if things go bad and then we had kind of a very capped you know when we always looked at the sector you know as kind of the hedge fund it was clear that the big producers were not where the torque was Right, you weren't going to make the most money in Cameco or Kazataprom, but you still should own them because they're high-quality producing companies. Cool. And so that's that's why we wanted to limit. And so again, we looked at you know what Selective had done for the index that URA used, and they had very large positions in those companies. We felt like they were outsized and they were limiting the ability to generate those really symmetric returns if the sector did move how we thought it could. And so that's how we ultimately 
constructed the index. Um, and, you know, I think we just got really fortunate in some ways that we, we launched in, uh, in late 2019. So December, 2019. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Cause yeah. I, I just, I just asked, I asked Mike to pull up my, my chart here, which I, you know, I'm just drawing different lines on the same. This is the weekly yeah. of URNM. And you must have said, okay, you know, now I finally went through the ETF process and then COVID hits and your uranium goes from what, 30 to 18 in an afternoon, it probably felt like. Um, give me a thought process at that point in time and your, your conviction in the thesis. Um, tested. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, any any volatility like that is terrifying. I mean, that that was, I don't think people appreciate how violent that move was for everybody, right? You know, stocks down 30% in just a straight line is not fun. Um, when I, I, I mean, I, I should go back and look at the text message, but that night when the Fed came out and announced their plan, you know, I, I sent a bunch of text messages, not about uranium, but just saying, this is, it's on, like, this is the bottom right here. And, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of capital available to deploy, but I, I definitely told people that, you know, uranium was a very interesting and more attractive opportunity, particularly as more supply came out of the market, right? When you start to see the Kazakhs shutting mines and having to um, curtail production because they couldn't get people out to the mines, um, it became apparent that this was potentially a very positive development for the supply side. Um, and, you know, nuclear power is, is not going to shut down because of COVID, right? So you, you had kind of this, this great dynamic. I don't think I appreciated kind of how positive it could have been, um, but it, it certainly jump-started or, or further um, built on the, on the supply deficit story. And, and you saw that in the price of uranium, um, you know, which went from basically the mid twenties to the mid thirties, and you know, it, it pulled back from there. Um, you know, once Cigar Lake was was restarted, and um, but but I think tell it, tell tell our viewers what Cigar Lake is for those. That... Cam Cameco closed down, um, so they had already shut down MacArthur River, and they they ended up closing a Cigar. Um, in order for really due to COVID reasons, um, and 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 because you know just more production issues, but it, it was you know it was a, a meaningful event for the sector. And then I think when it came back online, even though it took longer for them to bring it back online than people expected, um, but when it came back, you know I think the market kind of looked at it and said, oh, there's all this new supply. So again. It, one of the most fascinating things about this whole uranium market is how disconnected sometimes the market is from what you would think are consensus expectations. You, you can drive a truck through kind of what the market thinks or consensus is versus, you know, I think what smart people actually interpret. Um, and that, that creates a lot of alpha opportunities um, for, for people who are doing active management. And, and it is a sector that probably lends itself very well to active management. But the complexity, the fact that it tra trades, you know, 60% of the names in the, in URM trade in the US, uh, 20 or 30% trade in Australia, uh, another 20% trade in, in London. You know, it's a really global market. And so in order to efficiently access it as a retail investor or small time investor, it, it is challenging. And so the ETF provides, you know, a very effective efficient way to put capital to work across all of those markets. Yeah, uh, that, that's exactly what I saw back in July of 2020. And frankly, back then, you know, I didn't know uranium from a two by four. And but I, I can read a chart. And I said, something's going on there. And yeah. then I, I went into the weeds. And I think I got you on the phone right around that point in time. And I said, this is this is this is, you know, for real. And it's about the best risk reward I've seen. I've got my my arrows here. We're in around 30. And I'd like to give put this out there as, as some perspective, especially given what happened yesterday, that, you know, uh, frankly, the stocks moved ahead of the spot, which which is what you usually see. 
and then we went we doubled in the last month i yeah. I, I was even surprised by that looking back at it and then we pulled back to 79 yesterday a level that i mentioned on 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 the on the show that we're going to be putting out uh, today, but I, I just I, I want to have that perspective for everybody that you know people saw it down fifteen percent at one point, and they were kind of tweeting me like and texting me like crazy, and then I sh- I want to show this chart to say let's have some perspective here as as to the long term viability of this. I'm going to segue to that where I was with my dad yesterday, and he asked me you know why is your rating going up so much and now and where is it mine? So if you point to that a little bit i'd appreciate it yeah i'll, I'll talk about just kind of the fundamentals and and you know where where uranium comes from i mean so you've kind of well there's several primary places that so the kazakhs is kazakhstan has you know 40 ish percent market share um that the the way that we have exposure there is through kazataprom but they have some jvs with other folks like cgn mining and cameco um kind of the highest grade um, mines in the world are, are in uh, the Athabasca in Canada. So that's, you know, Cameco and uh, NextGen, Denison. Um, so that's that's kind of the hotbed. Those are the two big primary producers. Um, and, and really there's, there's some production in Australia. Uh, there's some potential future production in, uh, in Africa. And actually there's, you know, again, the jurisdictional um, diversification of the fund is also interesting because a lot of people shy away from Africa because of the headline risk. Um, we, we thought it was important to give people exposure to to those stocks because candidly, I mean, they have tremendous upside and, and there's some really interesting assets um, like Paladin, like Lotus, uh, which actually Paladin effectively spun out um, or sold to, uh, to a company that, that turned into Lotus and so we, we think it's important to have um, diversification across those various jurisdictions. There is some planned uh, production in the U.S., uh, but but very minimal today. But we do have some exposure to companies in the ETF um, that that are you know U.S. based: Uranium Energy Corp, Energy Fuels, uh, Encore Energy, which has been um, kind of a, a, a big winner for the sector. So try and provide diverse diverse exposure and uh you know not make a big bet on one part of the world and and talk to me about your rebalance quarterly i have that right uh actually we we've updated our methodology so now okay. we're uh, semi-annually and you know again that's just something a learning process we'd started quarterly and the because the sector is fairly illiquid the rebalances can can create some real volatility and so we didn't want to be rebalancing when any of the other ETFs were. So we, we, we chose to just change that to semi-annual. Um, we've, we've made some other probably less obvious changes around the rebalance. Um, we, we, we actually set the rebalance um, date a little bit earlier in the month. So the, the, the percentages are actually determined earlier in the month, which gives our portfolio management team more time to actually do the rebalance. So it's not this end of the end of the month, last day rush that creates, you know, insane volatility. Um, so we're, we're, you know, having watched what happened with some of the competitive competitor ETFs, who in my opinion have, have kind of done more harm um, than good in, in certain instances, we, we wanted to make sure that we were you know, really acting as uh, fiduciaries, but but also as you know, in the best interest of the shareholders and and the sector as a whole. Yeah. Um, and and try and make sure that there was not, you know, unnecessary volatility that was, you know, uh, disrupting disrupting the whole sector. You're not going to uh, tweet out your your buy list the way URA did. <laughs> it, in yeah, essence, I mean, there, there's certain there's certain dynamics that that's just. You know, so active. That's what they do. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So no, we 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 are a little bit more guarded about some of that information. Um, you know, it, but people are going to front run ETFs, right? They there's a lot of smart people trying yeah. to figure out what's going to go into the ETFs. Um, 
given the size of some of these companies, particularly the newer entrants, I don't think it makes sense for us to publicly disclose who those are going to be. Could not agree more. Why the number is 82.5% miners, 17.5% physical uranium. Why that quirky, those quirky numbers? Sure. So the the simple issue or, or answer, excuse me, is um, SEC diversification rules. So effectively, you can't have more than five issuers with greater than 5% position um, be more than 50% of the portfolio. So in order to keep ourselves under that cap, gotcha. and have uh, Cameco and Kazataprom capped at 15, we needed to have those levels. And actually you see there's kind of another quirky, it looks arbitrary, but it's a function of the diversification rules. The next cap, so, um, the largest positions are capped at 15%. And then below that, it's 4.7. So you know, some people will say, why not five? Well, because we need to keep those positions under 5%. Okay. Now there is, we, we have gotten some questions recently because we've drifted above those levels. The way that that rule works, the, the SEC, uh, the RIC diversification rule is that it's based on the, the, the quarter. So if at each quarter, when we report those numbers, our numbers are above 50, we would have to rebalance. But intra-quarter, um, they can float above 50. Gotcha. Uh, as you and Mike, Michael, or what does he prefer, Mike or Michael? Yeah, you know. Okay. How much market cap right now, I know you said it's going to expand, but right now the market cap available for you to invest in is, is what in uranium right now? 35-ish billion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but, but keep in mind, you know, Cameco is 9 billion. Kazataprom is about the same. So it's a very top-heavy industry. Yep. Uh, and then uh, what drove me to you was that you were the pure play, uh, but please elaborate on Tilted to Junior Miners and and how that differentiates you from your, your competitors. Yeah, so... Um, at the highest level, we have those 15% position caps on Cameco and Kazataprom. If you look at some of our competitors' indices, they have much larger positions in those, um, you know, 20% plus. And so that obviously, you know, any dollar that you give to those guys, you can't give to a smaller miner. And so we wanted to just ensure that those larger producers were not so outsized as to dominate the performance of the portfolio. Gotcha. Uh, and, and we also just tried as early as possible. So again, some of this stuff isn't relevant um, today, but you know, we had some non-pure play miners in the portfolio. The second there was sufficient liquidity in the sector, we punted those and we took that, I think it was about a thousand basis points, so 10% of the portfolio that was non-pure play. And we reallocated that towards junior, you know, the smaller miners where we think there is more torque and more uh, upside appreciation opportunity. So we, we, we will continue to do that. Um, I mean, I think that process is kind of done, but you know, on, on an aggregate basis, if you look at our portfolio versus our competitors, we just have more exposure to kind of the, the developers and near term producers in the sector than they do. What uh, changes to the original, in your materials, you talk about green energy, supply deficit, growing demand. What changes have happened to the original thesis where there's been positive surprises or negative surprises, please? I can't really think of any negative surprises. I mean, I think there's been a lot of upside kind of right tail demand creation that we hadn't expected. So ESG was kind of in its infancy when we started to think about this. Okay. It certainly was not relevant to nuclear. That, that battle is still being fought. But I do think that there is an increased awareness of nuclear's role in decarbonization. And so that's been very positive. And just that I think more eyeballs are looking at nuclear power and thereby uranium um, because, of, because of ESG and because of the, you know, pronouncements from, you know, China, Japan, Europe, the U.S., all setting these 
um, carbon neutral goals out in in the relatively near future uh, on a relative basis, you know, for for that type of transition of an economy towards a, a new energy source. Um, I think you know one of the, we can talk about kind of near term or, or more recent performance. Um, but if if you go back to I think November or December of last year, you know there was a huge uh, bump in performance, and some of that I think was the realization. I think there's a B of A piece that came out and said, you know, if some of these nuclear reactors in the U.S. get saved, well, that's that's like 20 million pounds a year of of demand that the market is not pricing in. And so I think the political winds changed favorably in that nuclear became this bipartisan issue. And so again, like even in the last two weeks, you saw uh, Byron and Dresden saved in Illinois. Um, and so that's a meaningful amount of demand that the market didn't think was going to be there mm -hmm. and has now been saved. Um, you know, it depends on your position about bailouts of you know, utilities or, or, um, you know, not letting free markets work, but, um, that's, that's a very meaningful event for nuclear and particularly around sentiment for nuclear that, wow, maybe we actually do have the political will to save some of these reactors because the best investment that the U S can make as the largest user of nuclear power is actually extending the life of these reactors. And so you're seeing that globally yep. is that, and, and so again, as the political winds change, now there's some discussion that even Germany might go back on their their pledge to shut down all their nukes. Again, I, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's a big right tail risk. The Chinese came out and accelerated the growth of their nuclear fleet. Again, market not necessarily pricing that in. It's priced. I would say it's probably priced in now. Um, but when it happened, I think expectations have been so low around nuclear power that there was there was just there was an opportunity for these upside surprises and then you know that doesn't factor in things like small modular reactors which are gaining um you know a lot of notoriety right now as a potential mm -hmm. uh, maybe too much because the technology remains unproven but out a few decades you know that's that's another potential source of of new demand so all of a sudden you know you have this very beaten down story kind of getting these positive tailwinds and so those those are always the things that you like like to see is you know these events that no one kind of appreciated um and, and you knew were, were mispriced but you never you, you didn't need them to happen for the thesis to play out right and that was kind of always the starting point was you know you have a supply deficit that's formed nuclear power is growing and as long as nothing catastrophic happens, you know, there there will remain a supply deficit out for several years that can only be filled with higher prices. Now, if you want to talk about kind of maybe the biggest upside surprise, it's Sprott, right? Are you, uh, are you reading my notes? That's exactly yeah. where I was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, you know, and, and I don't think they appreciated the ability, their their own ability to do this to do what's happened, right? So Sprott launched, um, you know, we were talking about a differentiator between our index versus others. We have Sprott in ours. Um, I fought tooth and nail with our compliance and legal people to make sure that Sprott was staying in because we viewed, and you can go look at our social media where we have kind of tried to re-emphasize the importance of this Sprott event leading up to it. Uh, again, I had no expectation of what was going to happen um and, and and the the immense demand for their fund but if you looked at the mechanics and what it could potentially mean to a sector that has had no front month buying in its history and if you actually believe that there was a big supply deficit and there wasn't a lot of mobile inventory out there then how could you not think that this was potentially a watershed event um so sprott and their entrance into the market buying physical has begun to make the market more efficient. And I think it's a shot across the bow of the utilities. Um, there's sovereign wealth funds out there. You know, there's this article on Friday that, you know, probably spooked the market a little bit, but, but really what they were saying is that the Chinese need to build a strategic reserve. 
and they 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 need to be able to you know source enough uranium to do that. And right now they're having a challenge. It's a challenge, and even Sprott is having challenges finding enough uranium out there. Um, so it just reinforced this this idea that there is not a sufficient amount of uranium available uh, to end users to be able to. Um, to, to be able to supply the market. And so, you know, as markets do, they, it should be repriced, right? It needs to be repriced higher. And that's, if you go back and look at the video we have on our website, there's a supply deficit, it will be met with rising prices and the price needed to double. Now the price has almost doubled from um, kind of when we started saying that, you know, 25 to 50, um, you know, it was 30 at the beginning of this year, low 30s. Um, I still think prices need to go higher to to bring on more production. Um, but now you have this wild card with Sprott and the ability for financial speculators to come in and influence the market in a very meaningful way that hasn't existed. And so it, it's hard to kind of see exactly how it's going to play out, but um, you know, the, the, the thesis has certainly accelerated a lot in the yeah. last month. You probably know this, but we talked about it on a, a couple of shows ago. When gold came out, GLD, it's 15 years yeah. old. I thought it was older than that. Obviously came out you know, at virtually zero. It's at $58 billion, and that's just one gold, you know, uh, owning the physical metal ETF. So, yeah. again, you could sort of say a half or 1% of, of that market is, is sprouts for the taking. Uh, there's a there's a you know a precedent and a lot of upside for, for for that. And what I understand, and maybe you could tell me, Sprott is not going to be selling it back to the utilities. From what I understand, is that Correct. accurate? Yes. Yeah. So, so there's an FT article that came out yesterday. Okay. Where John Champaglia basically said, you know, and, and I think that that was their effort to try and get out ahead of the market, saying that they're going to be sellers at some point. Okay. Is that the, the the trust structure doesn't allow them to sell uranium. So that's not to say that people won't try and buy it from them. I do think that they can lend some of the uranium from their balance sheet, but the idea that they're going to be liquidating this thing um, to the utilities is no, just not, not accurate. But it, it, I, I do, th I do think that there is a, so again, one, one of the big drivers of the, uh, the stocks the past couple of weeks was this announcement by Sprott that they were upsizing their uh, their at the market facility to a billion three, so it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, if I I, I think their silver trust is four billion, uh, which they've raised in eighteen months. Can they do that in uranium? I don't know. I don't know if there's enough uranium out there for them to do that. So it again it introduces this real wild card element. Um, and, and I, you know, it's, it's hard to predict what, what's, what's going to play out, whether or not there will be people who come in and try and stop them from doing what they're doing. I don't see anything wrong with it. Um, you know, why is it any different than what's happening in silver or gold, except for maybe the, you know, utility function of uranium. Um, maybe you could make an argument that, uh, the utilities shouldn't have to compete with them, but you know, it's a free market, right? People can speculate on oil. They can buy barges and, and, um, you know, ships of oil when, when the market's in, uh, you know, in contango. So why can't these guys go out and buy physical uranium? I don't, I don't know. Well, and, 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 about it. and, and this, I, I, this is either in your material or, or, or Sprott's material. I think it's yours. You know, at $35, we're talking about $6.3 billion. You know, we use trillions to talk about what the government, you know, uh, 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 throws around now. So, it, I, you know, I don't see why it couldn't just go into the rate base for the utilities. If they have. Yeah, no, no, it absolutely will. I mean, that's and that's always been the argument about why higher uranium prices are, are much less, um, you know, they, they don't de destroy demand the same way that you know higher gas prices or higher oil prices do because it's it's just not as significant a portion of the input cost for the utilities i think what the utilities are frustrated about is you know 
they think that this is not a real move, right? They don't think this is the actual price of uranium. Um, so I, again, I, I think it's it's been such a violent move higher that the market just needs to digest. And if you're a utility fuel buyer, you're, you're thinking you have months in order to, to secure fuel. Um, if you're a sovereign wealth fund, again, you know, the price was 30 earlier uh, in, in mid-August. Uh, now it's 50. So I just think things have moved so fast that people need to reorient themselves to the price. And, and then, you know, ultimately, one of the big catalysts that we always talked about, and that I think it's in our materials, if it's not, we'll have to update that, but is that the utilities have been under contracting for the last five to 10 years. Right, they've, they've kind of been buying 30 to 50% of their needs. In the last cycle, one of the things that drove price was utility contracting, right? So there's, they're entering into these multi-year contracts, generally seven to 10 years. And those contracts they ended in, entered into a decade ago are now rolling off. And so you have this big waterfall of contracts expiring right as the time where a supply deficit is forming and so those utilities need to go out and enter into contracts. And up until recently, there's been a stalemate because I think the utilities and, and a lot of other folks for that matter, look at what was the price of uranium where there was no front month buying to, to create price discovery. And they said, oh, well, there's plenty of uranium out there. Otherwise if the price would be moving higher, right? But it's just sitting at 30. So there, there must be plenty of uranium out there. We can take our time with, with contracting. Um, and all of a sudden that, that calculus has, has changed very quickly. But so we still haven't seen a meaningful contracting cycle. Um, I, I, I guess it's possible that it won't happen, but I, I, I think ultimately as you, the utilities run out of uranium, they're gonna wanna enter into new contracts. And particularly when with a price move like this, um, it will likely lead people to to want to ensure that they have you know that security of supply. What's happening with with you know, your flows and what are assets under management now, please? Uh, so we're about seven hundred million. Um, yeah, flows flows have been great. Um, we've seen a lot of money come into the sector. I think Eric Valchunas from Bloomberg put out a tweet the other day saying about 400 million came in last week. Saw that, yeah. Yeah, so it's you know it's it's been fast and furious, and I think the last couple of days of um, you know, a, a, we're just a little bit of shakeout of euphoria, and the thesis remains intact, right? The the, the price of uranium still needs to probably move up, um, you know, towards 65. $75, something like that, in order to really incentivize, you know, restarts of uh, Langer Heinrich, restarts of uh, MacArthur River, and, you know, the Kazakhs bring on more production. So you, you, you need those higher prices. And I think the, the producers, um, you know, ho hopefully they remain disciplined. They've, they've been very disciplined up until now. And um, you know, I, I think that's that's certainly another wild card is that they you know they decide to to start selling um, more uranium into the market. But again, if you look at the what 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 Kazatomprom has said, they said they're going to remain disciplined. They're going to you know maintain their production cuts um, out to 2023. So until those types of um, messaging. Uh, messages change, you know, I, I, I don't see how the thesis um, changes much. Uh, what do you, what do you worry about? What, what is, I always like to know, I've got my own ideas, but you know, the, 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 the bull thesis is refuted by X. What's the most convincing thing you or Michael here? I haven't, I mean, so, so there's there's two two different issues. One is is the bears, right? Um, particularly, you know, there's a fund out there called Delbrook who's been getting quoted a lot. They're quoted in S and P piece recently. You know, where where Mike was also quoted. What's the and name again, please? Delbrook. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
that this is a flash in the pan. This is the same as AMC and GameStop. Um, and this is all Reddit and there's, you know, plenty of uranium out there and, and there is, there's plenty of uranium that, that out there, but not at economic prices for producers. So, um, you know, there, there's always people who want to take the other side of the trade, particularly a trade that moves this fast. You know, I think it's, it's very rational to, to want to try and short it. Um, because you just think it's, it's just too, too far too fast. And, um, you know, as far as things, the real risks to this, uh, one is some nuclear event, yeah. right? That that's just the nature of the industry is, and, and I, I can't remember the name of the plant, but there was a, a Chinese plant that had some issues with fuel rods earlier this year and it spooked the sector pretty, yeah. pretty well. Um, I think that was in in June, and it just June or July, and it, it happened to align with you know Delta variant accelerating, and then kind of this move in the dollar, uh, which knocked all commodities down. And so you know that that's what took this at least URNM from kind of I think like the low 70s back down to about 50, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then Sprout launched and and off to the races again. So. Um, I think it's naturally a very volatile sector, but in terms of big tail risks, it's it's always going to be that nuclear event that is also impossible to foresee. Uh, just a, a quick note: uh, Japan's uh, next prime minister Taro Kono apparently has has started has talked about uh, the need to restart nuclear plants to achieve carbon neutrality by twenty fifty. Uh, and the old prime minister stepping down was the reason for the Japanese stocks perking up the other day, from what I understand. So that's just a, uh, an, an aside that I had. Uh, here's the long-term chart of, of spot. I'm trying to, you mentioned 65, 75, but we went to 140 back in 07. And tell me what happened then that can't happen now. There's no reason that it couldn't happen, um, particularly with the animal spirits and and you know the amount of money that's floating around. I, I just from from a discipline perspective and and also just the fundamentals of supply demand. They need sixty five seventy five dollar uranium. Yeah, right. That doesn't mean that the market can't take it way past equilibrium. Right. No, nothing tends to stop at an equilibrium. Right, markets are about fear and greed, and at 18, it was about as fearful as we we're going to get, um, you know. And that doesn't mean that we can't overshoot. So I, I just think, from a disciplined, fundamental value investor perspective, you know, playing for that eventuality is not not the most prudent thing. There's everyone, everyone's got their own risk tolerance, so. Yeah. Oh, the the uh, the history of of URNM trading at a premium or a discount to NAV. Where is it now, and 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 how close does it does it track? I actually, I, I'm gonna have to pull up <laughs> the site, I, and I don't always track it on a day to day basis. Um, you know, I, 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 there's certainly been times like in uh, around COVID where it traded to a discount. I think historically it's traded at a premium. For most of the time, um, there is a nice chart on our website actually, on the fund summary page. So yeah, I traded to a discount the other day, um, and, and it is also at a premium. But yeah, on, on average, it's it's been at a premium for most of its life. Okay. So you know, in actually, there's there's a nice breakdown. So in uh, in 2020. It traded a discount for 29 days. It traded a premium for 223. Um, you know, and it's, it's been about 15% of the time it's traded at a, at a slight discount. And it tends to be, you know, one, one day events, um, like what we saw yesterday and, and Friday where you have these big sell offs. Uh, this is my ooh la la segment. Then I'll let you go. Uh, uh, 
I might be too old. You might not know this song. It's The Faces. And uh, I always like to go back and I do all this for my, my son's 24 and 23. Frankly, it's a blatant excuse to, to talk to him uh, almost on a daily basis. But it, it, it stemmed from them firing questions and their, and their friends joining in uh, when they were in undergraduate business programs. And so here we are doing bake stakes. Uh, but what advice would you give to 23, 24-year-old Tim, please? Oh, so many things. Um, you know, definitely be more patient. I think I, I was incredibly impatient at that stage of my career. Um, you know, you just, you, you know, so little when you're, you're coming out of college and yeah, I mean, I think just try and learn as much as possible. If you can find a mentor, it's so valuable. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate that I had my older brother who was in the, in the industry and, you know, I, I kind of, it's probably better because he, he wasn't hard on me. Um, you know, when I would mm. do stupid things, um, uh, like, like a professional mentor might've been, um, yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think sometimes you get, you gotta, you gotta wait for your, your pitches, right. And if, if you really, again, it, everybody's mentality is very different. I've always been very entrepreneurial. I've always been very kind of risk seeking, um, for people who are not, you know, find a job that you enjoy going to that's intellectually stimulating and the people that you like and just grind, you know, but if, if you're more entrepreneurial and you want to go out there and you want to try and build something, wait for the right time. Um, and then I don't mean that in the sense that there's going to be some, you know, flashing light, but when you're 23, 24 work towards that, you know, build, build a cushion, you know, don't go into debt, um, do the things that give your, give you optionality, but don't, don't get yourself in a position where your back is up against the wall. And when that opportunity comes, you're not prepared. Right. And same, same thing in the markets. You know, that's why using leverage is so dangerous because it, it removes a ton of your optionality because the time that you want to be buying, if you're really levered, you know, you're having to delever. Um, so to the extent that you can take excess money, uh, and, and this is also not, this is not like a personal finance, like don't have coffee and don't go out to the bars with your buddies. Right, like, right. Do those things. Definitely do those things. You know, life is short. Um, take advantage of, of opportunities that, you know, to do things with people you love. But if you're really passionate about being an entrepreneur or building something on your own, put yourself in a position financially to be able to take advantage when you do see that fat pitch, because that's, you know, I, I missed, I missed a huge one, um, earlier in my career and, and who knows if it would have worked or not, but there was, a uh, I, I met a guy, I was probably 25 and I met guys, a uh, team of guys, and they were really early on this secondary, uh, trading of Twitter and Facebook. And I mean, I could have literally created Facebook at a billion dollar valuation. Oh my God. Um, and so these guys, and, and so, so part of it is also having the confidence to do that, right? I, like why I left Merrill Lynch was that I didn't have the confidence that I could go out and build a book of business from CEOs and private equity guys at 23, which was probably the right decision. Um, I don't think those guys would have spoken to me, but this one, I think if I had been in a better financial position to take a flyer, I mean, I, I, I you, wouldn't be, it, you wouldn't be talking to me. No, I wouldn't be talking to anybody. Like, yeah, an island somewhere. Um, because I mean, the the opportunity. And, and if you looked also at when you get involved, I mean, I look at like this whole uranium thing. The number of people I've met and other opportunities and doors that that's opened, just as a function of being in an interesting place at the right time. You know, it creates all these other avenues to do really cool things that you, you don't even think about. Um, but so, yeah, I, I, I look at that and I, I have I've got like a lot of all these things that I think I've missed 
where I mentally told myself, this is a great opportunity. You need to do this. And a lot of people told me, uh, that's, that's a horrible idea. Like no one's, no one's going to buy Facebook stock from you in the secondary market. Um, no one's going to buy Chegg and Twitter and Palantir and all these things. And it's like, you know, you look at these companies oh now, God. um, you know, so, so if, if you're, if you're in a position to take risks like that, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Right. But, but at least you, you're there. Um, and, and you can take a swim. Uh, I know for a fact that I've, I've, uh, I've sold some, uh, URNM, uh, but, uh, because uh, I, I, I get calls from people and texts and, and tweets all the time. It's wonderful. Tell me, uh, uh, our audience, how they can best follow you, reach you. Uh, what would you recommend? Um, you know, easiest place to follow us is at North, I think it's at NS underscore indices on Twitter. Uh, we're pretty active on Twitter. Also at URNM ETF. We try and put out, you know, very relevant um, timely articles that are about the sector. You can find all that information also at URNM ETF under the, uh, I think it's news section. Yep. News and views is what it's called. And yeah, we just try and stay on top of the sector and, you know, always happy to chat with folks. Um, you know, ultimately we, we, we we're big bulls and, but, but love talking about all investing. So um happy to chat with folks uh thrilled to meet you go jumbos and uh yeah. i will see you soon thanks so much thanks base take bye now bye bye